0: G'day guys, and welcome to the Coach Mark Carroll podcast. Today we have a big educational one. Today with Glenn, my brother, um, and we're going to be talking about the recent hip thrust versus squat study. So we often, you know, talk about on social media a whole lot about you know exercise selection and what exercise is the best for growing the glutes and all this stuff. And you know, it's often kind of seen that hip thrusts are the be all and end all exercise in a lot of communities. And, you know, if you've done one of my programs or worked with Glenn, you probably know that we don't choose one exercise only for growing glutes. We choose a large collection. And the last few years, I think squats got a probably quite a negative kind of, um, I guess push about, you know, its effectiveness for growing your glutes. So in this um, recent study, it actually really directly just looked at squat versus hip thrust, which is really cool. Um, so Glenn and I will go over it and kind of break down some of the key findings from the study, some more obvious that we we're expecting, some less expected, and some real, I guess, key takeaways for you for your glute training. But Glenn, do you want to give the audience a quick intro? I'm sure most of them know you, but what are you up to and tell them about it. Sorry, I'm just hearing Lauren yell at Buddy the dog.
1: Hello, hello. Uh, so my name is Glenn Carroll. I'm Marks older brother. I've been in the industry for about 15 years and I co-founded Cara Performance with Marks, our education company. And I founded and I run my uh, online coaching company called Atlas Performance Health or Team Atlas on Instagram. Uh, But yeah, very keen to talk about glutes and what to unpack. A lot of nuance, which is often missed, um, both good and bad. So yeah, let's dive into it.
0: Cool. So I guess... To begin, guys, um, so the study I'll get I'll get Glenn to kind of dive into a bit more detail, but I think the study was over an eight week period and
1: yeah, nine week. Um, Give me just punch out what it was, just explain. Yeah, yeah, so untrained population 18 to 30 years, male and female, nine week duration. One group did hip thrusts only, another group did barbell back squats only. First session, first week, I believe, was one time a week. And then they increased the frequency to two times per week, three to six sets per session of just that single lift. Uh, And the number of sets per session did increase progressively over the nine-week period. One group, as I said, just squatting. Again, unchained population versus people doing hip thrusts, I believe, on a barbell on Brack and Treris's devices, so good stuff. Um, participants in a squat group were told to go to parallel, which is an important thing we will discuss in a little bit. Um, obviously, hip thrust told to go to full lockout. Both groups, crucially, were told to work to failure for all sets and to use as much learning as possible, and the rep range was eight twelve reps. If it was too heavy for to get eight, that'd drop the load. If it was too easy, that'd bump the load. So that's basically the study. Um do so we want to talk about the findings real quick as well, I guess. Yeah. So um, um just before that
0: a couple things. Um from a standpoint, you know, the study you said
1: untrained. So do you just want to explain mm-hmm. that to the audience? Yeah, so I hadn't been doing consistent training for a number of years so no more than one session per week on average so essentially untrained which is very very crucial so people are training two or three times a week even if it's inconsistently you're still going to be at a very different point from a neuromuscular standpoint Um, and so pretty much as untrained as possible um, which is quite different to a trained population untrained be gains potential. So that's important to flag as well. Yeah. The thing that often you'll see
0: with studies guys is that a lot of it is kind of untrained people. And then you see a lot of times when you see studies broken down in the comments, people being like, well, this doesn't really matter that much. Or how, how much does this help us? You know, if you listen to this podcast, probably you're training a lot and been training for years. And the thing is obviously training for years and having really good base means you're probably going to respond nowhere near as well to different interventions as someone who's totally new to training so that's often the the different kind of takeaways where people like oh well why is this study trained and why is this study untrained um and yeah when you're untrained you guys know when you go to the gym often pretty much you can do anything and, and it can work so sometimes that's one of the key factors with studies like again how much does it matter who knows but yeah it's just sometimes important to just have a quick takeaway as well because if you're untrained often when you think of study, if you're getting someone to squat, it's like, well, how high quality is their squat potentially versus someone who's really trained and how effective are their squatting? So often these are sometimes the thoughts that go through your head. When you get studies, it's like, well, okay, but there's probably nuance to it. But um, do you want to just kind of go over simply just the basic um, findings, I guess, of the study?
1: Yeah, so they measured strength and they also measured hypertrophy. From a strength standpoint, naturally training specificity matters because you get better at what you do. And so they looked at the squat, the deadlift, and the hip thrust at a 3RM. Naturally, squats, the squat group improved their squat far greater than the hip thrust did. Hip thrust group, the deadlift was identical in terms of gains over the period. And on the flip side, the hip thrust group actually was. Better on the hip thrust progression from a strength standpoint. We don't have to get into the numbers, but it's as you'd expect. The interesting one, which most people probably care more about, is the muscle growth standpoint, whereby, again, hip thrust versus squat only group, both groups achieved noticeable muscle hypertrophy, increasing glute max, the emphasis there, 15% for thrust, 14% for the back squat group. So essentially the same, 1% difference. Naturally, as well, due to the nature of the movements, some other muscles grew as well. Squats, a tiny bit of growth relative to the thrust in the hamstrings, but minimal 3% to 1%. On the quad side of things, naturally, quads grew more in the squat group, 30% to 7% on the hip thrust. Aductor longus, which impacts things when you're in deep hip flexion, naturally grew more on the squat group, 10% to 4%. Crucially... Glute meat and glute min had minimal gain at all as well. 1% on the squats versus 3% in the hip thrust group. So glute max is a big winner. um, But naturally, quads and adductor longus grew more in the squat group. So from a practical standpoint, it's very helpful to know, but the population and the duration of the the study itself is crucial too. So there were the findings. Mark, you want to jump back in?
0: Yeah, let me kind of explain some of those a bit more, a bit more specific, I guess. Um, so, with the squat, the squat grew the glutes basically the same amount as the hip thrust. Okay, so that's, probably, I guess, the most simple takeaway. So, if you, the people who squatted and the people who did hip thrust, they both had the same level of glute growth. Basically, which is, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of out there have been like, oh, hip thrust, hip thrust are everything. You have to only hip thrust and all that stuff. Well, yeah, the hip thrust grew the glutes, but not in a superior manner to the squats. So the squats, people always, you know, hate on squats and, you know, don't bother squatting. You need to do hip thrust and all that stuff. Squats are just for powerlifters. Well, squats grew the glutes just as much, um, which obviously might be a shock to some people. Um, but Then from looking at other things that grew, the squat grew the quads more, which again, shouldn't be shocking because when we're squatting, we're obviously training the quads um, focused as well as the glutes. And then the hip thrust barely grew the quads. So that basically says that if you're trying to grow the glutes, but really, really minimize the quads, the hip thrust would probably be a better option. But unless you have a real reason, like a physique competitor, where you just can't grow your quads anymore, it probably doesn't really matter um another standpoint was that then your adductors grew more with the squat again if anyone has squatted you know if you haven't squatted in a long time you do
1: deep squats your adductors are terribly sore the next day oh, it's, a, um, it's a freaking worse i hate the adduct doms is like the worst thing ever it's like oh i wish my quads were sore exactly yeah.
0: so yeah so your adductors that's why i often be like oh you don't you don't program adductor stuff well your adductors um uh involved in your squat so they contribute to hip extension so when you're in the deep squat your adductors play a big role in helping extend the hip when you're in that like more deep hip flexion so that's why you get adductors at the bottom there Um, and then if you want more adductors that's when you can take a wider stance um, if you want that Um, and the other thing was I think this study said I can't, can't correct me if I'm wrong but Again, the hamstrings didn't grow
1: on either exercise. So, this kind of minimal 3%, 1% for the squat. So, as we'd expect, hamstring is very minimally active during the squat pattern. Yeah. So, often you
0: say, oh, the squat, you know, trains the hamstrings. No, hamstrings um, are more kind of isometrically trained. So, they're not lengthened or shortened in the hamstring muscle. So, it's going to be the quads and glutes. So, hamstrings are not going to be trained in really effectively in either. I would say, though, with a hip thrust, if you take your feet further away, then you will probably, um, because I don't don't Mm -hmm. think they did it at a 90-degree angle, you will definitely increase hamstring recruitment. But if you're just doing the traditional kind of 90-degree right angle of your um, shin to thigh um, in the hip thrust, then it's not a hamstring exercise either. And what was, again, the glute medius
1: stuff? Minimal. Again, I believe it was 3% to the thrust group to one percent gained for the squats so obviously bilateral stance on the on the squats very different to doing single leg stuff because your lateral glutes have to stabilize massively from a hip stability standpoint as soon as you get onto one leg which is why split squats lunges, step up to a phenomenal for that yeah and obviously, um direct abduction work, you know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I was just talking about a squat pattern, but yeah, 100%. So that's a big takeaway as well. With neither of these great exercises are actually growing lateral glutes very well. Logic says you want to more specifically train them via different exercise selection. But obviously, a few, like any studies, a few limitations of it. So to be, want to sort of dive into that and then chat about some practical flow and effects subsequently. Or
0: yeah, we'll get into some less expected findings. Um, But maybe let's let's chat some of the you know no studies perfect you know and you know exactly learning from a lot of smart people they the way they look at studies like real the real scientists in the industry you know they don't go and do a study and then generally be like aha, uh-huh. there's the, all the answers, um, you know, guys at Lane on mm-hmm. say. It's like it's slowly chipping away to find more truth and find more, yeah. more slight more answers. So, again, this study is not saying necessarily to do this. Even, the, you know, the authors of the study are not trying to be like, hey, this is case closed. That's not really how science works. It's always just trying to find more things and I slowly but surely get closer to the truth. So what... What was, um, would you say, some of the limiting factors?
1: Well, I think the big one is obviously untrained population. You're only doing two lifts. Think back to day one of the gym. Squats are damn complex, especially with the barbell on your back. And I don't believe Mark and I would ever be teaching a true novice on day one a back squat. unless they said, I just want to learn out of back squat if we wanted to get a result would be regressing the exercise selection and simplifying it, still training a squat pattern, but the neural sort of demands of that movement are very different and far, far greater motion, bigger muscle, muscular involvement. So it's a lot more complex. And when exercises are more complex and you're more inefficient from a neuromuscular standpoint, your ability to progress on that over time and get a proper hypertrophy sort of stimulus, it's going to take a bit of time. The benefits of a hip thrust is shorter range of motion, far less complex movements. Also crucially, which we haven't actually said yet, is both exercises, the thrust and the squat challenge glutes, and we focus on glute max at a very, very different position. So hip thrust, hardest in a shortened position, the muscle fibers of glute max, Squats, where max will be challenged most in a lengthened position. People often get lost in the feeling of certain movements, and with any exercise, you'll often feel it more in a shortened position. And you'll see on what are called EMG sort of activation sort of studies that when a muscle is in its more shortened position, activation will be highest. But when it's in a more lengthened and stretched position, activation will be lower. However, crucially feeling doesn't translate to hypertrophy. And so there's a lot more nuance to it. And just because you feel and exercise more doesn't mean you will grow that muscle group more. And so the big thing is that newbies gain day one, like you're going to be a wobbly mess. And so I think the complexity of the squat naturally makes it at a disadvantage versus a thrust especially over a relatively short nine-week study period so would it have been different over a 12 16 18 24 week study period potentially the other thing as well the volume did increase over the nine-week study so they increased the frequency after week once training twice a week and then they added progressively more sets that may sound logical from a progressive overload standpoint, but if you've got a leg up in terms of loading a movement swifter and it's easy to progress and not master it, but be more competent in it. say on the thrust versus the, the squat, if you're getting increased sets and more stimulatory reps at a movement you're already better at contextually, logic would say your potential gains, potential could compound faster, especially in the final weeks of the study. The other big one is definitely squat depth. Now, the participants were told that they wanted to squat to parallels, so hip parallels to the ground. One tall person definitely did not. But doing a bit of digging, if you look a bit closely, and from seeing some comments from the researcher involved in the study, Plotkin, that five out of the 16 squatters definitely did go sub parallel. And that's really important because the deeper you go, the more stretch of glute max. Which is really important from a hypertrophy standpoint because muscles typically grow best in a more lengthened, longer position versus subpar inferior range or shorter position. As well, a little single line that I took away from the study where I said, yes, they're aiming for squat depths to parallel. Five people went below, apparently, one is above, the rest was around parallel. That is different to parallel versus below parallel. Deeper the stretch, better growth potential. However, in the study, it says squat reps were not limited to parallel depth. So they actually aim to go lowest depth possible. So again, think back to day one squatting. Are your reps going to be consistent? Probably not. Are you going to half-fast the reps and stop them short? Probably. And so, if not all your reps are to an optimal depth and are using a pretty inefficient load, is it going to be very stimulatory for hypertrophy potential? No. So, less depth and stretch, less optimal for growth. And then, if you add on to that, the reality of failure, obviously, how would you feel, Mark, if you did three sets of 12 rep back squats to failure? On week three of just getting a a G, would you feel very good? I think so.
0: <sighs> yeah. I the thing is, all uh, right. We know there's been really kind of good research with when people try to assess what is failure as well for them.
1: Exactly. And so
0: like, you know, we often talk about like RPA or reps in reserve. Um, so you know, if people go, hey, do you do a set to failure or I want you to do a set to you can have to stop two reps from failure and we know that a lot of the times people really suck yeah mating when failure is like they might go all right I've got two reps left I'm, you know but then they're exactly. forced to keep going and then they get another eight to ten reps out so yeah why does that matter because things like a squat are probably going to be harder to assess failure than doing a hip thrust. So a hip thrust, you're going to be more confident to take to failure because it's not as much technical breakdown and you're just moving weights more. And the thing is going to failure in a shortened position is different to going to failure in a stretch
1: position. Exactly, Especially if you do it for all sets. Like like they're doing six sets of squats supposedly to failure. And so that's an inherent weakness because yes, you've got the, the research is saying push 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 timmy push 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 kimmy but the reality is is that are you mentally in like desire to repeatedly attack that well you're untrained to be blunt you're not really conditioned from a mental resilience standpoint no matter how tough your own life to be like holy shit that was hard but i can actually do more And, and are you really going to want to or the residual tax from doing it from multiple sets will lead to a performance decline in subsequent sets, but where you're failing, as you said, at the hip thrust, like it's, yeah, it's probably going to pump and burn more in a thrust, but the actual recoverability should be far swifter versus a squat. And again, the global tax of where are you feeling that residual sort of pain and where, what is giving out? Is it your quads and your glutes or is it your lower back? Or is it your head be like Ugh, you're making more mental errors because with fatigue, again tiredness, mental errors can impact neuromuscular efficiency as well. So there's a lot of factors. So again, I'd say crucial. Um, let's say I, I don't know. I think
0: the rest were three minutes or something. Yeah. They, I said you had to do six sets of twelve reps on the squat, and then another day you had to do six reps at six sets of 12 reps on the hip thrust and set one, I want you to start with your 12 rep max, okay? And then your goal is to keep after three minutes, repeat that same weight, which is your your 12 rep max, right? And then if you had to do six sets of that as a squat versus six sets of that as a hip thrust, I probably 95% of the chance, 95% chance believe that your rate of, performance drop off from set to set would be much greater on the squat than that of the hip thrust so for example if you did a hard set of 12 on the hip thrust and rest three minutes your next set you probably still get 12 and then the next set maybe get 11 and then 10 being short and based you seem to not be so taxing not as much of a global fatigue um feeling and like, you know, a hard set of hit for us, you'll go to failure. Oh my God, my glutes are on fire. And then two minutes later, you go again and do a great set. Yeah. Hard set of hit of squats of 12 reps, you're going to be feeling that setting, second set. Oh my God, it's three minutes. I have to go again. And you do it, maybe get 10. And then, oh my God, three minutes. I've got to go again on that same weight, maybe get eight or nine. So the rate of drop off will probably be lower if you're actually trying to measure true failure. And it's going to be, you know, even then, it's going to start to feel like, a bit more cardiovascular. Um, Big sets, time. sense of fatigue from squatting for that many reps and stuff like that, and assessing failure. You know, if you do a squat and if if you ever train anyone and they do a deep squat and they go, "Ah, oh, I'm done. I can't do any more," and then you're like, "All right, breathe, breathe. All right, go again," and they do another one, and then they do another one, and then they do mm-hmm. another one. Whereas something like the hip thrust, you, people you don't need to actually push them too much. They just keep pushing when they can't get up any higher.
1: They just stop. And that's like, oh, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Failure so, is a big yeah, thing. Just the ability to fail. Yeah. yeah. Exactly um, as well. Big time.
0: Yeah. So that's the, uh, you know, because the, the, they're just two different exercises, but that's why it's quite, even though you're measuring set for set, two different, um you know, two exercises directly, they're just kind of different. And, you know, training something that is short in position. Generally, just the fatigue and the recoverability is quite different to something stretch position yeah. based, alone a stretch position base which yeah. is going to be a much larger range of motion, a squat, which means yeah. further, you have to move a load further. Um, and as well, obviously, as we said, you're training the quads as well. So you're training yeah.
1: muscle tissue, which, which again is going to bring about more global more fatigue. fatigue. Set yeah. to and again, if you're challenging a muscle hardest and most in a more lengthy position, the other thing that's going to happen is you're going to have higher muscle damage. And so muscle damage is not, it's not our main driver of hypertrophy, so mechanical tension overload is. Um, and so when muscle damage is higher, we need to wait for that muscle damage to subside before muscle growth is really going to start kicking in. But it takes time for that to happen, and if muscle damage is really high, and you're learning a movement, so you're more stuck in a, like a neural adaptations phase. So you're just trying to learn a movement. So your nervous know system signaling to muscle fibers to contract, to relax at the right times, trying to improve, improve your coordination, you're going to be in that sort of stage where you're sore, to be blunt, you're a bit more clunky and gronky. And so you should be able to progress more swiftly with thrust. And so a squat training, that longer muscle range of motion and more length of position is going to cause more muscle damage to the cords and glutes. And we already know from studies as well, that muscle damage is higher for novice lifters. And it's going to take about roughly three months for it to start being tolerable and tolerated better. And so, the study's only nine weeks, so could we have seen something different over a longer period of time when they're more accustomed to training that movement and that longer range of motion? So then they start catching up to the thrust, or possibly going past it. I don't know. I would that's say a potentially, but it's crucial as well to ponder
0: from like that being more like you know hypertrophy, like what we call like more structural adaptations. They take a long period of time, right? But the thing yeah. is. The neurological adaptations, which is just like your body understanding the skill of what it's trying to recruit um, mm-hmm. to perform that movement. You know, if you ever go to a gym and you start off with a beginner client, getting them to hip thrust well, you can do that after a session. Getting them to squat well doesn't take a session and often takes months. No, some months a month, exactly. Yeah, squat and then they hips shoot up and their knees are moving all around like Bambi, whereas hip thrust they just go boom boom, they're doing basically perfect reps. After yeah, which is why it's work.
1: so cool, the hip thrust. It's so powerful and so beneficial. It's like bang, well, let's It go. also it's means quick.
0: that if you're measuring two people, two groups of untrained lifters, one, short study, you can effectively do far more efficiently immediately versus the other lift, the squat, you're probably going to be taking even just the, even eight weeks to even learn how to do it really, really well. And so if you're tracking, yeah. you know, output and growth from one lift which is much more technical to learn so therefore it's probably going mm. to take longer to actually truly take your body to a position to foul at it effectively and get as much out of it um and actually really express your true strength that's there it's probably going to be a lot longer than nine weeks for a squat to do so that's the, uh, the other thing and the other uh, with the squat as well is that everyone's biomechanics are different so yeah yeah you could have two people walk into a gym and you just go, Hey, squat, squat as deep as you can. And one person can have a super deep squat where their knees push really far forward, torso really upright. So they get super depth and they get so much quads out of it. Another person can have um, longer limbs. And so therefore their squat looks more kind of like a good morning and, they therefore don't push their knees as far forward and have much more back involved from, because they're more hinged over the torso position. So even though the two people are doing the best they can with their squat, they're going to look quite differently. So again, it's the how, like, yes, you're doing a squat, but if I want to get as much out of a certain muscle group for a person's squat, I'll need to really individual, individualize it to that. Client's mechanics and their structure, and I might might have to make changes. Whereas with the hip thrust, you don't really do that. You just go, hey, here's the hip thrust. Set the bench up to the right height, um feet at the right position for you. So again, so that's just a little other differentiator. If you're trying to just go, hey, we just got people to do a barbell squat, that can be really nuanced and quite different as well for people. um So with Glenn, um, obviously we did some of the obvious findings. Um, I guess some maybe less expected findings would you have anything
1: well the glute meeting glute min so medius and minimus achieve essentially minimal growth which makes sense in many ways wow. so from a programming from a training standpoint naturally it says you want to have some more specific focused abduction sort of base movements so well, that's a seated angled kickbacks sidelines so the bench abductions all that stuff very very important to add to complement glute Developments beyond just glute max, but both exercises did also, thrust and squat did also grow glute max in its entirety well. So it's not just our squats just were found to just be lower glutes and thrust just at the top, but it's like it grew the very, very large glute max with different fiber orientations very, very well. And so the glute maxes, the glutes as a whole are very interesting because they have very interesting sort of architecture and different components of it. So that's why certain angles and variations and step angles and hip flexions and stuff can be very beneficial for a more complete and optimal glute development because you want to attack it in different ways. But again, both Mark and I and a savvy coach would also say that even if X lift is most optimal, you still want to attack those or that muscle, the glutes at different positions, which is the benefits of a hip thrust and back extensions, reverse hypers as well. So it depends how you want to train them. Um, I think EMG studies were shown to be kind of not very beneficial. So feeling your glutes more. So the hip thrust group subjectively said they felt their glutes more, but that didn't actually translate at all to superior actual muscle growth. So feelings doesn't equal progress, doesn't equal growth, Um, but you should feel, feel your glutes more if it's being challenged more in a short position. Just like if you will feel your quads more if you go and punch out leg extensions as well versus some other sort of squat-based movements. But again, feelings don't necessarily mean you're growing. There's more to it. So, yeah. Yeah, for me,
0: as I said, like I often talk about, you know, programming and being like, all right, well, if I uh, – squat probably is going to be more stretch based i mean the squat's going to be harder when you're at the bottom of the squat so when the glutes really stretch it's probably going to be better for like what we kind of call like the lower division of the glute max and then you have a bit more of an upper division of the glute max and normally you kind of associate region it, that with more what we call like regional hypertrophy so regional hypertrophy is kind of the the idea that where a muscle is potentially challenged in the rep that potentially has then the the ability to produce more hypertrophy in that specific part of the muscle in that rep so kind of like a say like a a hit thrust or a, a 45 degree back extension it's harder towards the top so often you kind of think well if it's not as hard at the bottom then the lower division of the glute max might not be as effectively built there but the upper division of the glute max is where it gets the most tension so therefore hip thrust should probably be more effective at building the upper division of the glute max and not as effective at building the lower division whereas the squat being harder at the bottom should do the opposite be harder be more optimal to building the glutes at the bottom and not at the top but the study what was interesting for me was that both exercises grew both the lower and upper division just as much. And so it's kind of like, well, does it really matter the difference in the resistance profiles of where it's challenging from a standpoint of like a regional hypertrophy? And yeah. it seem to be yeah. the case, which is interesting. Um, and, yeah, and I'll just say as well, kind of what Glenn said, with the feeling of exercise, we often associate a good exercise for and with, with an exercise that we really feel it. We want to feel the burn because it's psychologically it tells us, oh, we must be doing something right because we feel it, right? And that's why things like I think kickbacks and banded abductions and banded kickbacks are so popular because you get such a deep burn and that burn is normally going to be more associated with that shortened position when that muscle's being fully shortened. That is where we generally get more um, activity. But Again, the more we keep seeing with hypertrophy is that it's the actually opposite end that in that stretch where we get the most hypertrophy for most exercise we we see these days. And that's often where you feel it the least. That's why on exercise like an RDL, people are like, oh, I don't feel my glutes. I just want to do this. And but you're not feeling the glutes, but it doesn't mean they're not working. And yeah. it's just one of those things you need to think like, think of it like this, right? Say with an RDL your glutes are your prime hip extensor and also your hamstrings will contribute. And when you bend your legs more and push your hips back, your glutes are really, really by dominating the ability to hip extend. And the thing is just because you're not feeling your glutes terribly doesn't mean they're not there. Like you literally would not be able to move if they weren't working. Like it's not like, yeah, that muscle is, is making that joint move. So without that muscle, doing its job you literally wouldn't be able to move so it's not a standpoint oh man I'm not feeling it so therefore it's not working it's you know I mean you do you don't choose you know it's like doing a squat and it's like oh I don't feel my cords are deep burning my cords and glutes but without your cords and glutes um extending the hip and the knee you literally wouldn't be able to stand up so that's why sometimes I think people get forget that anything are, oh, it must not be working and
1: stuff like that. So can, can I explain just real quick why people feel certain things more and why that doesn't necessarily translate the hypertrophy because think about, it's more like if you're doing 30 reps versus five reps, think about the energy systems being used and the cost and the tax. Now, if you put that into running terms, if you ran for sprint for say 200 meters or 300 meters, versus 50 meters the energy cost will be different and the residual tax will be different and so just because you're doing more reps you're doing more total contractions more bloods getting pulled into that muscle but you're also getting what's called an increase in metabolic byproducts nerdy talk for an accumulation of things like hydrogen ions or lactate and stuff but what can happen is with effort we can sort of get signals from the body to essentially stop or slow down because we're getting into a point we cannot essentially safely perform that movement anymore. Our body's sort of freaking out. But again, that's very different to muscle gain and what's called mechanical tension overload. And so punching out 30 reps and getting a pump and a nice arm pump, booty pump or whatever, pulls blood into muscle, increases metabolic byproducts, sends a signal to our brain, gives us information but that doesn't necessarily mean we are stressing those individual muscle fibers to force it to adapt because that training stimulus or stressor is surpassing our ability to handle it. So when a stressor is superior to what we can handle, we have to adapt and transform essentially to then handle that stress in the future, which is why five reps on a heavy back squat will feel very different and you're going to have a lot more muscles, but the fatigue is different. It doesn't mean... It's an inferior stimulus. It's more global. And the key with any exercise, if you want to grow, is you want to have more grindy, sort of slowing down, concentric reps. Because when the things slow down, going back up, we recruit more individual muscle fibers so we can expose more of those individual fibers to grow, which is what we want. But if you just get party pump stuff, yeah, you might get some acute swelling in the muscle but it's not going to stick around so that's the important difference it's just different energy system different taxes from using those different energy systems but overload the name of the game that's what you want i
0: would say though again though, with the pump stuff it does lead to hypertrophy but you just need to do more reps
1: <laughs> exactly know? exactly that's the thing you need to slow right, down so
0: it does lead to hypertrophy i think glenn kind of misworded it there, saying it it won't stay around. I think it's more so It's more so that the, the vast majority of the reps, you, like if you take it to failure within, you know, 40 or 50 reps. You exactly. Can, yeah. Like, hey, failure happened. and effort's
1: the key. So you have to, whatever rep range you're doing, you have to have a sufficiently close proximity to failure. So that's the one thing I just did it added. Like if you're doing a 20 set leg extension, but you could do 50, you're going to get a pump grow. but if you're doing 20 reps and like, yeah, those last, fi- last five reps really suck and they start sort of slowing down. Yeah. So that's then a, that definitely you, is beneficial. You can get a pump without taking
0: exercise to failure. Exactly. That's the difference. That's the way difference. people are like, I get the pump. So you, let's say if you did, as Glenn said, like had, had to put 30 rep max on your leg press and you did 20 reps and you rested, you know, short rep, like, you know, you'd still get blood flow into muscles, but you're not mm. actually course, you're not taking it close to failure. You're not going to get those high-purpose adaptations. But that's why, again, like if you guys have done my programs, you know, I'll program something like a DUP, so daily undulated periodization, where I have different like kind of days, you know, like a lower rep day, like a heavy day, I call it, for like, you know, it might be five reps on four exercises. And then I have like a, I call it a light day, so a high rep day where it might be 15 reps. And I always have to explain the DUP that, they're just different days neither days effective and be like oh well i don't get the same burn on the heavy day does that mean it's not effective i'm like no it is it's just a different kind of feeling so yeah but um i guess we'll wrap up with with kind of putting this all together you know so when it comes to you know hypertrophy and stuff like that be like oh what's the best exercise you know it's Building muscle is not about one exercise. It's not powerlifting. It's muscle building. I'm trying to um, kind of build muscle from a variety of ways. Um, Glenn, what would you, you know, how would you kind of approach this? Oh, I guess the take home study, study, the practical takeaways, you take home anything, or the or like. Well, you know, I still
1: think both build. are great exercises, and I think personally, a very skilled lifter, if they're hitting full depth, according to the research of looking at a whole bunch of different muscle groups, logic would say full range, good depth, good effort from a pure set to set basis, potentially probably back squats would be superior. If you have to go pound for pound, how much I'm not sure, but that does that mean that hip thrusts are just useless? Absolutely not. I think the more practical thing is takeaways. A lot of people really like hip thrusts. So, the most sustainable form of exercise is the one people enjoy. And if people, like doing hip thrust, and clearly it works. Keep doing it and keep trying hard. And again, if it helps to take out certain sort of muscle groups, so it's a bit more isolated, less quads, less adductors, that can be very beneficial for people who are trying to grow their glutes. Likewise, as well, far less complex, your body can be beat up more from squats. So I think one of our practical takeaways you may just need a few more sets contextually of a thrust relative to a squat. But again, not everybody will be as biomechanically suited to barbell back squats. I know I freaking don't particularly love them after two hip surgeries and two shoulder surgeries. Um, And so I love, 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 love unilateral variations, split squats, step ups, lunges. So I I get very creative there, which is also going to really challenge the lateral glutes hard as well. And so my objective for myself and clients is to be really strong on single leg variations but I think it's finding the best squat that works for you and the best combination of exercises to put into the big picture, which a client can happily progress. And the benefit of a hip thrust beyond a simplicity and potential enjoyment is that you're probably going to get less sore because you're training a different muscle range. And so you can potentially tolerate more total volume. And so if you're, a client who's lifting, say, five days a week and three days of leg stuff like that, that's a that's a lot of lower body volume. So that's the benefit of training short and position based exercises like back extensions, reverse hypers, and hip thrusts. So for bikini people, people just wanted to just really grow their glutes without getting beat up to the same degree. That's the benefit of a hip thrust as well. And so I guess you don't though, just forget that too.
0: The counter though to that would be that well hey if you don't want to train as much you could just do more stretch face exactly 100 percent. Right? So, yeah hey you could probably get just as good a results of actually spending less time in there in the gym i know just I more focused stuff so it's kind of like well, yeah, you get less banged up by doing more short and focused like back extensions, hip thrusts, and stuff like that. But probably to produce the same amount of hypertrophy, you probably need to do more working sets. So that's If you love training and stuff like that and you want to be in the gym four to five days a week. But if you're a person who can only train a couple of days a week, my take-home would probably be, guys, which is all the available research coming out around muscles most likely being... More effectively built when the stretch of the muscle or the stretch of the exercise is what's most challenging. I would bias more of your work towards that, um, especially even if you you feel it less. Yeah, even if you feel it less and focus more of your time there, um, especially if you can be less in the gym and then you know over, over the course of your week, if you had say six exercises for glutes, you did you know maybe did two, three exercises. Monday and three exercises, Thursday or something like that, I'll probably go a two to one ratio. So, two two stretch focus, one short. So, it might be, say, a squat and an RDL for the stretch, and then a back extension for the shortened position on one day. And then another day, it might be a lunge um, for a stretch, um, a good morning for the stretch for a hip hinge, and then a thrust for the shortened position. So, again, bit more bias towards the stretch and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, but if you're p- potentially also trying to do more volume, you love training, you know, your third lower body day might be instead of more, a lot of stretch focused stuff, it might be more th- thrust, more back extensions, more kickback abduction stuff to give you a little bit more break um, from things that lower the stretch more generally cause a bit more, a bit more muscle damage, a bit more ability to, uh, a bit harder to potentially recover from as much volume. So if you're going to more volume, More short and focused stuff uh, would be probably what you would add on if you're doing less and less volume, probably a bit
1: more stretch focused work would be the priority. Um, And uh, training status, sorry, nutritional status and context would be important. Like if you're in late stage diet mode and like you're in a final bit and high stress, poor sleep, pushing really hard stuff or calories, do you want him to be doing a, a million super stretch positions? Probably no, because again, recoverability would be taxed, ability to potentially recover from that, not so great. So that's why, again, benefits of shorter position stuff. So if I had a client doing a photo shoot or a comp and the last program is just heaps of stretch, stretch, stretch. Yeah, I, I don't know how optimal that would be. And so, what about um, important again,
0: things like intensity techniques as well, like a drop set where in diet mode? No,
1: just in which one you would probably choose. Uh, um it depends short short. yeah yeah usually so again it comes back to failure and ability to do it safely so i produce generally with like drop sets and stuff on more short and base exercises so leg extension hip thrust back extension it's really good for that because you will lose to shorten range first but that, that also doesn't mean you should just stop the set you could just keep going but your ability to reach that sort of top range is lost but If you knock off hypothetically 20% below, then you can extend a set, do more work. But I think drop sets also get overplayed by people symbolizing just adding an extra set with superior quality is more sufficient, even if you feel it's a little bit less. Um, But yeah, both are benefits, but it's often the dose and the frequency and the when and the why. Yeah. All right, guys. So a lot of stuff covered there. Hopefully
0: it gave you a bit of relevant information for you. Um, I don't think, again, I don't think a lot of the stuff is shocking or anything like that or life changing and, you know, no study should necessarily be too, you know, life changing. Cause again, one at a time, you kind of learn a bit more and, you know, kind of just build upon things we mostly understood and maybe just pushed a few thoughts a slightly different direction, but moral story, both are great exercises use both. If you want to get stronger, yeah.
1: squat, squat more. You want to get stronger, hit thrust, hit thrust more, um, and do what you enjoy too, and just work your ass off and push high effort to be consistent. Sleep, eat, sleep, train, repeat. Yes. Um, uh-huh. So with that, guys,
0: um, Glenn you, Glenn is a online personal trainer, and we also have our Carol Performance guys. If you want to learn about all this stuff, we've, um, we've program design and or if you're an aspiring personal trainer then come to carolperformance.com and obviously come learn from us you know our program design course has over 40 hours of video education literally program design is our passion it's what really has allowed glenn myself to work with amazing people and get amazing results the last you know 25 years between us as coaches so if you're a personal trainer come invest into that and if you're someone who is looking for a private one-to-one coach glenn do you want to give them a little bit of um, uh, a message about atlas performance who are incredible at what they do
1: yeah so team uh is our instagram profile and we just do one-to-one premium like bespoke online coaching and so it's it's very very hands-on fully customized and dive very deeply and just really very pinpointed and very sort of Ail it's everyone's goals. I'm always chasing like an ultimate body recomposition. So time is my best asset and sort of the ultimate sustainable yet elite results, what I love doing. And so if you're looking to take yourself to that next level and attack multiple phases and get strong as hell and be a boss in the gym and look epic, hit us up.
0: That's it, guys, So I'll put um, Glenn's link for um, his website, and Instagram for Atlas in the bio of the podcast and come check out Carol performance as well, guys. But as always, Glenn, thank you so much for coming and sharing everyone. And to everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you um, share it to your audience, tell people about it, share it on social media. And as well, if you're not following the podcast, make sure you press the follow button at the top of the Apple page um, follow the podcast so You get our episodes as soon as it comes out, as well as if you haven't yet, please, please, please leave a five-star rating. It takes 0.1 seconds and helps me tremendously with the podcast. As always, guys, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Glenn. See ya.